Welcome to the 624 Pod, your home for all things independent films. We're going to discuss all the positives and negatives when it comes to independent filmmaking. We're going to have incredible guests from the film industry talk about the behind the scenes experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, and how the industry has changed in the past 10, 20 minutes. Yeah, minutes, hours, years. years. That's the point. It's always changing. And of course, we will always focus on independent filmmaking right here in our state of New Jersey. I'm Tom Baldinger. And I'm Mark Rigadana. All right, let's do this. So, Mark, I'm going to now ask you, who's our next guest? We're in for a treat. Are we? This guy's great. I He's interviewed everybody on the planet. Yeah. He's an awesome stand-up comic. He's also a great actor, and I absolutely love chatting with him. We have John Fugel saying, John, welcome to the show. Welcome to the 624 Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you both for having me. It's a pleasure <laughs> to drag you down to my level. Welcome. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed working with you, John, on our, uh, on, our, on our web series that we shot. We shot eight episodes called Checked Out, uh, and John played a German uh customer that comes into the convenience store and he did it brilliantly and uh he gets verbally attacked by yours truly by, by you john did i send you that episode by the way have you no seen i've it? never seen it no I, no I, no i have I'm never been seen for it. a treat it came wow out. i'm a terrible producer i mean right maybe there. you did and it went to my spam folder like everything else does but uh but i <laughs> I, no I i i the thing i loved about when john came on set is when we wrote this uh it, w- it was completely different in my head mm. of of how this thing goes down. And then John came in with a different character than what was in my head when we wrote it. And yeah. now I can't think of it the other way. How did, he did originally, good... how did you originally write it? Because all I wanted to do was... All I wanted to do was please you, Mark. That's that's all I cared about. <laughs> well, you did. You you played uh, so the the character's German. He has a German accent, and we kind of were thinking of him as this big, goofy, like cartoony German guy. Yeah. And you came in with this. I, did, very, I, did, I had longer hair. I tried to do. Like I was going to say you grew your hair out for that. I, I tried to that. be like a diehard uh, villain, you know, in a, <laughs> which I was a hundred percent down with when you as soon as you did it i go yeah that's a that's exactly how it should be but like in my head while you're writing we're talking about this on another episode when you write and then when an actor brings something to it it can change everything and it was like now this character was almost a little more threatening than it Mm -hmm. was like being like the jokes were kind of going over his head you played it so cool and it just it goes to show, and I mean, we're not showing the audience, so I feel bad, but when an actor makes a choice, it can change everything and and in an impositive way. Like, I wouldn't want to go back and do it how it was originally thought of because you brought something to it that I didn't even see. And it makes, <clears throat> as a director, it makes the job so much easier as a director because when you you work with professional actors who brings something different than what you wrote or what, you know, what we envisioned, you envisioned, you wrote this at that episode specifically, yeah. I remember. And you have a professional actor like you, John, who comes in and just does something completely different. And, you know, I sat back on, all right, this is perfect. I don't, I, I don't, I don't have to do anything. I just have to call action. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just have to, I got to watch the two, you know, two different cameras going at the same time to make sure, it, you know, we're, we're lining up and everybody looks good because outside of that, you know, that's, 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 that's the joy of working with professional actors 
in the independent industry, right? Yeah, it's almost the 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 idea of directing isn't about working with the actors. It's almost casting the right actors. Then you don't have to. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, one of the top rules of auditioning is that make your choice and commit to it. And yeah. Be ready for adjustments if they ask for one. And um, I, I'm someone who loves to get notes. I love uh, when a director tells me to change something. I, I, I find that the more parameters you have, the more your creativity can be stimulated. I think a blank canvas is often, it just means more work, you know, but mm. when you impose some guidelines for a character, uh, that gives you a lot of room to work with rather than the whole universe. It, you know, uh, it's ironic and it seems counterintuitive, but narrow parameters, some kind of limitation always uh, makes me more creative. When we did radio gods, it was the same thing too. You came in, and you had the choices made that you made, and it was like it wasn't what I thought when I when we were writing it. But as soon as you came in and delivered it, it was like that's exactly who that character is. Like he nailed it. <laughs> like it, I think I was called the Chode in that, wasn't I? You were. You were. Yes. Uh, you were the Chode. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, the what? The Chode. He was a morning radio guy. That was the Chode. Yeah. <laughs> you were the you were the kind of the meaner of the you and Don Jameson duo. Yes, you, I've, you, I've, ne I've never seen that either. Uh, you guys, I, I love working for you, but you you keep the product from me. So yeah. I, I, this is so healing for me to hear this. From you. <laughs> I'll send it to you tonight. I got to call my therapist right now and tell him you guys said this because I've just been wrapped. <laughs> so much has been lifted from me. So, so John, so it's funny, you know, both of us are saying, you know, we we both directed you, we both worked with you, and you you come in with choices. So talk to our audience about as an actor, the choices that you decide to make prior to coming to set or getting onto a stage. What's, what's that process like for you? The day you get a script, yeah. what's what's from day you get the script to the day you show up to shoot. What, yeah. what do you, what do you like to find? What do you, how do you go about finding your character? I mean, I like to read the script a hundred times out loud. Mm. Uh, you know, if I had my way, um, you would have like a month of table reads for any play or movie. Mm. If you bring a cast of actors together for a play and you have four weeks of rehearsal, if you make them do table reads for three and a, three weeks and then block for one, you'll have yeah. it. Because mm. by the time the actors have done it so many times, they know the rhythm, they know the flow, they know the intention, they know what beats work, they know where to take a breath, where to pause. Right. And for me, it always comes from not just reading the text, but but saying it out loud, which is how you memorize it. But it's also how your body gets used to it. And you find the writer's natural rhythms. I mean, I and the uh, words become your own. They have to, you know, yeah. the whole the whole point of it is how am I going to lie here, you know, and then lie in front of people, pretend to be something I'm not and tell the truth at the same time. Mm. And that's what is so, um, so exciting and addicting and and sometimes elusive but uh you know you have to know it inside and out like you probably have albums that you know every note to every every drum line every bass line and it's much the same with text you have to serve the author's vision that's always got to be goal number one but um you have to be able to well you know like with stand-up where you know your material in and out and you you know right where you take your breath on stage and so 
you know, I, I, I'm really into that. I'm really into a lot of rehearsal, a lot of repetition. I also love improv and I think improv skills are essential, especially for auditioning because you have to be able to come in and have you drop all your intentions at the last minute, um, which is also pretty fun. I did a, <laughs> I did a pilot once for, uh, NBC, which, um, was, uh, based on a British sitcom and it was with Paul F. Tompkins and, and, and myself and Amy Adams, um, wow. and Amy Adams, was, Amy Adams was fired and they replaced her with Tiffany Thiessen, but it, it took place in a bank and I was the bank manager. I was very young, but I was cast as the bank manager. So it was a very much a straight man role. Mm. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins was the incompetent lead who kept messing everything up. And I was the boss who would breeze in and be, you know, ignorant to everything and not recognize I had a bumbling idiot in front of me. And, uh, <laughs> It was the hardest thing I ever did because there was no edge to the character at all. He just showed up, looked good, never said anything clever, never said mm. anything interesting. He was always too dumb to notice how incompetent his bank manager was. I, I went to so many acting coaches in L.A. on this, and they all said the same thing. I have no idea what to do with this. There's no character. I had to get to a place where I was just like, well, I don't want to play an attitude, but this man is a feather. This man just glides in and smiles and he's superficial and he's raised wealthy. So he's never had to have any consequences for being bad at his job. And he's able to always be pleasant. Uh, he, he can afford massages and yoga and he's a relaxed guy and he just comes in and is breezy and that's it. And it's sort of like how I, it's sort of like how I should have hosted America's funniest home videos, but it was the hardest role I ever had. And it was completely edgeless. This is with NBC and Warner brothers a, a few years back. And again, yeah, they fired Amy Adams and replaced wow. her with Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Um, but that was, that was like the hardest role I ever had to do. You know, I, I Donald Glover said he called Billy D Williams for advice on how to play Lando Calrissian. Mm. And Billy D only had one piece of advice. He just said, be charming. And normally, <laughs> uh, I'm very much against just playing an attitude like that. Mm. But um, in that case, it was enough for that character because you don't want it to be just an impression. And in the case of be charming, well, there's your intention for every scene. There's your intention for every beat. You have to beguile someone and make them like you and you will get what you want if you can charm this person. And so you can have a lot of fun with figuring out, you know, what yeah. kind of pain drives that sort of behavior underneath. Wow. Yeah, that's a way to get deep on a, on a shallow character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Lando was a deep character in Empire Strikes Back. And then by Return of the Jedi, he was a cartoon. So, you know. Right. There's like, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of truth to that. Yeah. It's like you were you were a young Ted Knight. <laughs> at the bank <laughs> well i always aspired to be uh um oh god who's the other one uh, who was the ted who was in every sitcom in the 80s and 90s I, I already forget um but yeah you know it it it's to me it's the hardest thing is when you have like a tiny role and you have basically nothing to do and you don't know what to do with it and that's when you just have to make a really strong choice and seem like you're not acting. You're just in there to 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 solve a problem really fast. You know, I had one scene in this movie, um, Coyote, Coyote Ugly, mm -hmm. and uh, I, and I I didn't know anything about it. They never sent me a script. I just had this scene where there is this impossibly pretty Australian guy, and I run a club, and his girlfriend's supposed to come play, and he does, and she doesn't show up. And so I make him give me his copy of uh, Spider-Man number one. Oh, I remember that scene. There was yes. nothing to the character. I knew nothing about him, just that he's angry. He's angry. 
Yeah. And they they offered it to me based on my stand-up. They came and saw me at the Laugh Factory in LA and offered me this this one scene. I don't know anything about it. So I was just like, I'm going to lose my job because I have to have an act on this stage. Mm. And 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 so it was just easy to just play the the desperation and trying to contain the anger. If I'd played it mad at him the whole time, it wouldn't have worked. Instead, I just played it like trying not to get mad at this guy. And um, and it was fine. And then I, a few months later, I went to the movies and I saw a poster with all these incredibly hot women for a film called Coyote Ugly. And I, I said to my girlfriend, oh, I was in a movie with the same title, but it, none of these women are in my movie. And then I found <laughs> out I'm, I'm the one guy to have a scene with just the pretty guy. In that film, <laughs> you're the only guy that didn't get a scene with the hot chick. No, no one. <laughs> so, working on independent films, uh, do you do you feel like you have more of a say? Do you try to work with the directors or the producers or the writers because it's independent and it might be low budget, so they might be more open to collaboration versus larger studios where it's like, here's your script, here's your yeah. job come in and do it and you Honestly, can do all your homework at home. Yeah, it varies. You have to do all your homework at home. You have to come in there and be ready to hit your mark, have no rehearsal, no conversation, no mm -hmm. meeting with anyone. I mean, you have to, I've had sets where you just show up and you go to wardrobe and you go to your trailer and nobody talks to you. You don't even meet the other actors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just have to show up and hit your mark and be ready to deliver. That's happened in TV as well. You always hope to get a Kubrick who will want to shoot it a hundred times and let you play. Mm. But um, I find an independent film that's often even less likely because an independent film, so often there is no money, right. and the rehearsal schedule—I mean, the the shooting schedule—is often on a tight crunch. So yeah. you think, oh, it's low budget indie. I can play around and improv, and very often that's not the case at all. They've got to shoot this thing and move on to yeah. the next shot before they lose the light. Since everything everything's gone to digital video to look like film, it's gotten a lot easier because at least an independent film, it's not a cost issue anymore of wasting feats, feet of feet of film. Right. Um, that was a big change. That's probably the biggest change, I think, in independent filmmaking in the last 20 years. Yeah. But uh it's it's no guarantee. And it's funny because I always ask actors when they come on my Sirius XM show about rehearsal for a project and how much they get. And you know, if it's if it's like a something based on a play, you might have a shot at it. I mean, watch Denzel Washington's Fences mm. and think about the fact that Denzel Washington and Viola Davis did these roles on stage every night for a couple of months. So they knew it. They could breathe it. It was it was in their blood. And it shows it's a it's it's one of the greatest films of, of the 21st century uh, based totally on the writing and the acting. Are you a fan of uh, I know you do theater and stuff, but. The process of theater, it sounds like that's more of what you're into. I'm a rehearsal whore, yeah. I mean, I, I really am. But I but <laughs> I, I also rehearsal whore. That's a good one. Oh, I can't get enough. But I mean, but I also think in film is is equally collaborative, but in a, in a different way. Um, so I I I don't have a preference. I, I love both, but they both exercise very different muscles. Now, what about the muscle for your your serious XM show the, on channel? Was it one twenty seven? I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, what's what's your rehearsal process for that? Well, you know, it 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 depends. That show has evolved a lot over the years because we were doing it in the daytime, and then they made me an offer I couldn't refuse to move it to the Progress Channel at night, which mm. meant it was I was moving to a political channel and had to make my show politically centered. It used to be part politics, part everything else. Um, 
once it became politics as the the forefront, you know, it it uses a very different part of your brain, and it requires so much preparation every day because I have to be able to talk at length about every subject in the news and have a point of view, uh, hopefully have yeah. a joke or two as a button to get out of something. Yeah. And because um, we get tons of calls and I, I'm debating and talking to people and it's, I find it's much harder playing a character that's 100% improv where the character also has your name and looks like you. There's a, <laughs> it's, to me a much um, a much more dangerous proposition. It's it's not really safe, and you're all alone. Radio's not not a, a you know collaborative process. I mean, I have great producers I work with, and you work with the people you're with. I do lots of panels with comedians or, or have a lot of actors on. Um, but it's amazing how different a discipline it is. And anytime I get to go now and work on a play or a film, it is like it's like summer vacation. That kind of work is so refreshing because it's not, it's not having to fill my brain hard drive with all the politics of today and then delete all that and start over again tomorrow. I mean, I'm mm. doing three hours a night, every night. And Ouch. sometimes it's politics. Sometimes it's comedy. Uh, a lot of times it's talking people off a ledge. Mm. And, um, and a lot of times it's being a therapist for callers in the, in the nighttime hours. So wow. the radio is, is, uh, it involves so much preparation. I'm not good yeah. enough to just go up and wing it. It involves so much preparation and it involves so much improv at the same time. But that's you how I feel about stand-up too. I was gonna say, do you find that you're that you're more exhausted from doing radio than when you're on set or if you're doing stand-up or you're doing theater? Mentally, mentally, yes. Um theater and being on set and stand-up all give me energy, you know. Uh yeah. radio yeah. is harder. Radio is harder. Man, that's it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it, and again, radio is different. If I'm in the bomb cellar here doing it, you know, it's one thing. Uh, and and in New York, we're at night, so a lot of times I do the show from home. All next week, I'll be in LA and I'll do it in Sirius XM Studios at a decent hour with a full studio of comics to play with. So that's that's you know, that nice. gives you a lot more energy. Now, when uh, when you pre prep for uh, when you used to do more interview style, yeah. That has to be because you, you, you don't want to ask the same questions. So you want to like dig a little further or maybe assume things so you can ask questions. Do you find that little, I don't know what the right wording is. Was that more fun than like, I got to read this newspaper, read that newspaper, yeah, come up a, with the topic. It, it's a good question, Mark, because it is it is um, a different kind of creative process. Like I learned this when I was very young and and the first I think one of the first big interviews I ever did at VH1, which was my first broadcasting job, was with uh, George Harrison. I was getting ready to fly overseas to do a special with McCartney, and then they called me up and said, we need you to delay your trip to London by a day. Mm. I said, oh, come on, man. And they said, no, we need you here with George Harrison and Ravi Shankar on Thursday. I was like, what? And wow. I, I worshiped George Harrison. Um, I loved his solo music. I had every album. <laughs> Uh, I loved his guitar playing. I loved how much his guitar playing and songwriting changed after the Beatles. And his his spirituality was of keen interest to me. I grew up Catholic, abnormally Catholic. And once I got away <laughs> from the church, my spiritual side evolved a lot. So I grew up Catholic as well. So yeah, my 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 uh, my mother was a nun. My father was a Franciscan brother for 16 years. So I, I was raised wow. by ex cult members. <laughs> uh, 
You know, my sometimes you find out your parents were married to somebody else before. Uh, I, mine were both married to the same guy, and it was God, and he got <laughs> in our house. With George, I knew if I asked about the Beatles, he'd get bored and get up and leave. Right. So I talked a lot about God and the soul and meditation mm. and what happens when you die. And in my earpiece, my producer was yelling at me, ask about John Lennon, ask about the Beatles. And I just, I knew if I said the B word, he would think, I was, <laughs> think I was a Muppet and he'd get bored and he'd leave. Right. Because I, I knew him and I knew he hated talking about the band. Mm. So, I mean, this, you know, I, and how could he not? Um, so instead I talked about spirituality and meditation. And I kept saying, I can't see how meditation in your garden can give you the same buzz as making music live on stage. I said, as a stand-up, I, mm. I understand how meditation's good. I don't see how it gives you the same high. Mm. We were off to the races. And oh, he was coming in for like 10 minutes and he wound up staying for four hours. And he talked so much. And we talked about the about death, you know, and about the soul. And at one point I handed him a guitar. He hadn't done a concert in America in over 20 years. He played four songs that had never he'd never played live before including um, an unreleased song and a Wilbury song Dylan had sung. And um, he's, he was diagnosed with cancer two months later and it wound up being his last public performance. And oh, wow. the day he died, I was up in Montreal doing the comedy festival and they asked me to fly to New York to, to host some wraparounds. They said, you know, George is in hospice and we want to, we want to recut the special you did three years ago. Um, Cause when it aired the first time they cut all the God stuff out. When he got sick, they recut it, had me fly in. And then it was all of the spirituality that they thought no one would care about the first time. So the day he died, VH1 played around the clock, George Harrison and this 26-year-old kid talking about God and the soul and what happens when you die. And yeah. to this day, I'll have wow. guys come hug me in airports because they'll say, I never saw anything that spiritual on, on, on TV before. Um, <laughs> and it was all the stuff they wouldn't hear the first time. When The first wow. time William Shatner did my show, I, I I just, how do you talk to Shatner? Like, what hasn't this guy, this guy can just do it in his sleep, right? He just shows right. up, plays William Shatner. And he, so I said, you know, with all of these movies that are getting like the Snyder cut, all of these movies that are getting right. shot, like director's cut. I said, if there's one movie I can think of that deserves a director's cut, I think Paramount should give you some money and a CGI budget to recut Star Trek V. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> now, Star Trek Five is the worst Star Trek movie ever made. It's the only movie William Shatner ever directed. It is he reviled, correct? And with good, it's terrible. Lawrence Luckenbill plays Spock's brother, and he's amazing in it. But the film itself is really, really bad and really it's, uneven. And there, there was a strike at the time. There was a there's strike. times there are times John where that movie will come on, and I go, all right, I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to give yeah. it another shot, oh, and it terrible. just, yeah. But there was a strike going on at the time. And they didn't have the special effects they thought they were going to have when he signed on for the movie. Mm. So Shatner so loves that I took his greatest piece of professional shame and reframed it in a way that allowed him to talk about how its badness wasn't his fault. Mm. And okay. after that, he opened up about so much that he told a story about how Leonard Nimoy tried to have an intervention for his wife before she died. And People Magazine ran it like... If you can wow. find something for them to talk about, because the more famous the celebrity is, the more they've been asked every question and they're bored and they don't want to be there. But if you can find right. something to stimulate them, then they'll know you're not a Muppet and then they'll open up uh, in ways that you never could have imagined. So that's probably the biggest thing I've learned about interviewing. You have to tell Tom how you got your gig at VH1. How I got you it? 
they didn't they see you doing your one man cabaret? Oh yeah, show? yeah. Well, I was doing a show. I was doing a show in Greenwich Village, a monthly show at the Duplex, because um, I was my day job was running a dorm for NYU. Okay. And then at night, <laughs> I would do this uh, show in the Duplex, like a couple times a month, and it was just a ro- you know a one hour show with me and some openers, where I did monologues and and did characters and just stuff I couldn't do in comedy clubs, and um and, you know rants and stuff like that. And uh, because I was running a dorm, I, I, and they don't ever, they didn't check IDs in the nineties. I, I was like, what's the lowest I can charge for this? They said $2. I was like, okay, $2 cover. Like I didn't want to make any money. I wanted to play to a packed house as often as I could. Mm. And I had a whole routine about Michael Bolton because this was the nineties when VH1 was what I called the Michael Bolton, Kenny G liberation front. It was nothing but this. <laughs> oh yeah. Nothing but this guy with the bolts in his neck just this monstrosity and um just horrible music uh and <laughs> and i had this, i took the, the the plot of the video missing you now which has to be seen to be believed it is the worst music video and the worst song uh, ever released in america in english <laughs> and it, the whole plot is michael is is convertible breaks down in some small little town and uh the the local mechanic tries to help him and the mechanic has a hot young daughter played by terry gar uh, before she did uh, Desperate nice. Housewives and Superman, and and it's so bad. This this screeching dirty <laughs> water song, and the whole time this old mechanic's like, "Hey, my daughter, what she needs is a good roll in the hay with a balding soul singer." <laughs> it's, it's excruciatingly turgid. At one point, Kenny G shows up, like as the Christ figure, doing a. I mean, so I just did this rant, taking it apart, exploring the use of allegory and Kenny G as a Christ figure and trashing VH1 for playing it around the clock. And I didn't know, but one night there was a table full of VH1 executives. And um, no, but they were in the process of rebranding the entire channel and they wanted to get as far away from what it had been as they could. What you were making fun of. (laughs) Yeah, they were They tried to be music first. They wanted to be like MTV for grownups for like five minutes before they realized no one watches music on TV. Um, right. So people like music. They like TV. They don't like music on TV. I mean, we would have these incredible specials with Eric Clapton and Dr. John and nobody would watch. But a Gallagher rerun would get incredible numbers. So that's why that channel is a wasteland of reality show crap now. But uh, they they said, hey, we're looking to we're looking to uh, uh, relaunch our channel. Come come be our funny guy. But I wound up being their classic rock nerd. They hired me to tell jokes, but. I was the only guy who could talk about classic rock and who knew all these bands and stuff. So I, it wound up being my, my broadcasting graduate school. That's awesome. It's, it's just amazing. Cause it's, it's what you'd say about auditioning too. Like you came in, you had a point of view, you stuck to it. And yeah. then you, who would think like, Oh, and VH1 executives see him and go, yeah, let's hire that guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah, it, it, it's it's wacky, but again, it's about making a choice and committing to it, and remembering, even in the audition process, if you're totally wrong for it, you know they'll they'll remember you. I mean, Dustin Hoffman got the graduate because Mike Nichols had read him for something else and turned him down, but mm. thought, oh, that guy I didn't like then to be perfect for this happens all the time. The 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 whole reason I met uh, my uh, production partner Michelle was I auditioned for her film. And I was completely wrong for it. Everybody who auditioned for this film were these gigantic, muscular, tough Southern guys. Mm. Like they looked like they would <laughs> kick your kick your ass, you know, right behind. The, and I saw the people who were auditioning, and I go, I got to take this in a different direction because 
I'm not scary and intimidating like those guys. So I made this guy the most flamboyant guy you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> but the kind of guy that you're like, uh oh, he might have a knife in his boot. <laughs> yeah, bold choices. I mean, like these casting directors have to watch so many auditions and so much blandness. And if you can find something real, find a real way to to connect to them. You know, um, I did this independent film a few years ago where I played this college professor who uh, who seduces his friend's pregnant wife. It's a film about mental illness and this woman who writes a bestseller about being bipolar. And then she gets pregnant and goes off her medication while she's pregnant and begins acting out. And I had mm. to have a scene where like I'm helping her with her golf swing and <laughs> things wind up happening. And I, my first time having a a, a, a sex scene with a, a pregnant person, uh, a prosthetic, a pregnant <laughs> belly. Um, and it was uh, so weird at the time. Uh, oh my gosh. I, I felt so creepy by it. Uh, <laughs> I never watched it. Like I, when, when the, when it was released, I sent it to my assistant. I'm like, can you watch this and tell me if this is okay? And I finally, after years, just watched it for the first time last week because I'm working on a reel. And it was like, oh my God, I wish I'd watched this back then. I love the work. It totally, like, wow. it was so convincing. Like I so believed myself as this cretinous academic who was doing this to a, a mentally ill pregnant woman uh, because I knew I could get away with it. And I didn't play it as evil. I played it as nice guy who huh? realizes. The guy from Coyote Ugly. This is going to happen. Yeah, no, I just, I just played, I, I just played it as a guy who, you know, like many guys, devotes himself to pretending he's better than he is, and, yeah. um, and, and that was it. And as soon as I realized, oh, I can do this, and, it, it, and, at the time, it felt really creepy and unpleasant. But watching it a few years removed, I'm like, oh my god, this is perfectly creepy and unpleasant. And I was actually happy. With the work. <laughs> Uh, real quick, uh, you're working on your reel. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the people watching. What's the importance of having a good reel as an actor? What do you look for when you're looking at your scenes? Like, you know, yeah. like looking for a monologue is such a big deal when you first become an actor. I got to find a monologue that has a roller coaster ride on it and it goes from this and this. But when you're making a reel, you're trying to take your like greatest hits. You're yeah. becoming a casting director, right? I mean, you're becoming yeah. your own director and your own casting well, and your own writer, right? You're you're trying to sort of read the minds of a lot of casting directors in advance. Mm. <laughs> and you know, you it's like, okay, do I use a lot of clips to show how diverse I am, or do I just use one or two really long full scenes to show my levels exactly. and stuff like that? And it's 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 different in every case. And I'm like I'm working on at the simultaneously working on uh uh, a new acting reel um, and a new uh, stand-up reel and a new hosting reel. And when that's done, I'm going to work on a new reel of me talking about religion because I have so many clips of that that I want to make it its own thing. Uh, mm. That's to a book I'm writing. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, I, I can't say. Everyone's got to see what works best. I mean, some people want to show a lot of stuff. Some only want to show one or two. The best advice I can give is to keep your professional reels under three minutes. Yeah. And if you have that kind of discipline where you know you have so much good stuff, but it's got to be three minutes or less. And if they want to see more, they can ask, then do that because you will, you know how it is, Mark. You could have like the yeah. greatest material in the world that you love, but you find out from the audiences which lines get laughs and which ones don't. And, <laughs> right. You know, when you have exactly three minutes, but I have 20 minutes of killer stuff on tape, well, make it the strongest three. possible, whatever that means to you. I like I like watching reels where it's it's short clips. 
I like to see, you know, the diversity of you as an actor, right? Yeah, that you can play, you can play this, you can play that versus I've, I've seen reels where it's three minutes, John and Mark, where it's two scenes. And yeah. I'm like, I, I don't need to see your, your short film. <laughs> like yeah. I want to, I just want to see what, what you did best and, and your diversity. So I, I like, I like the advice that you're giving there, John. That's, I think that's, the longer scenes really probably lend themselves better to theater work uh if yes. you're looking for a theatrical reel and yes. um to show that you know oh i can i can hold my mark for you know a, a 10 minute scene and exchange dialogue and 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 do arthur miller so yeah. you know <laughs> but I, pr I prefer to show like here i am as this like the, you know my reel has got like here i am as the scuzzy rock promoter here i am as the you know sleazy guy who's uh seducing the pregnant lady here i am on becker <laughs> it's a crazy guy i, I play the crazy <laughs> guy on becker and my so you're support. saying your adjective stays the same, it's your noun changes and your rules. Yeah, that's, that's my <laughs> own comes forward. I, I played a crazy guy on Becker, and um, and I'm still I keeping it my real. It's 20 years old, but I'm still doing it. And mm -hmm. I my whole choice for that was uh, I never blinked, and I never told anyone. But for every time I was on camera, because I'm supposed to be in love with this woman who who works in the diner, and I proposed yeah. to her after one date, and she thinks I'm crazy, and in the end they find out I really am crazy. But all along I charm everyone, and I played the entire scene at the taping. I never told the director, <laughs> producers, but I never blinked once on set the entire time, and it oh it really God. worked. It, it totally worked. Um, Again, I, a choice that you made uh, in your preparation, and that's yeah. and that's that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. I love hearing that. I love hearing hearing that 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 again you sat home you were did your preparation you said this is the choice i'm going to make and whether they recognize it or not i know the choice i'm going to make and it did something of, a lot of actors don't understand that the people on the other side of the camera have way too much shit to think about so yeah I when think, you show up as an actor just be fucking good so yeah, then i can do it i mean like if i had played him as crazy and you know like if i if if i had like done a few things you know whatever <laughs> then it's acting and it's great what i just tried to do was this guy makes everyone in the diner love him and the whole thing is that he he's coming on so strong proposing marriage to this waitress after one date and in the end you find out he's getting married himself next week but if you say yes that wedding's off and i just <laughs> as charming as possible but my secret and you've always try, want to have a secret you don't tell anyone and my secret was i'm not gonna blink and and i love it and I, I love smiled, it. I love and it. I played him as sane and charming and wonderful, and he never blinks the whole time. And that was, oh, you know, I mean, Brando said in theater, you have to show the last row what you're thinking. In film, mm. you just have to think it. Mm. I love it. Awesome. That's a good line. That's a good. We're going to quote you on that. I'm going to use that. Please quote That's me on Brando. I'm quoting that. <laughs> John Fugelsang said, Marlon Brando said. Yeah, exactly. Quote, quote, Brando, also quote. Said, Brando also said, I'll have more gravy. Uh, he said that many times. I, I could quote that one. <laughs> so, John, uh, so you've got a uh, you got a pay-per-view show coming up. Uh, oh, that, yeah. Well, is this is, tell tell us a little bit about that. Can I thank you for letting me do one of these things where I don't have to talk about politics the entire time? This is the <laughs> uh, I, I've been doing this tour for um, a few years now with Stephanie Miller and uh, – and some other comics, uh, the Sexy Liberal Tour. This is Stephanie's baby, and she and I have been doing this off and on for a decade. Um, and over the years, we've been joined on stage by a lot of, I mean, Margaret Cho has done this tour with us, Daryl Hammond, Aisha Tyler. We're doing a, uh, and we've been joined, We like every comic comes out and does a panel, and it's straight up liberal political comedy. So um, that's amazing because in so many parts of the country, you know, you have people who, 
are progressive or liberal or democratic or or anti-evil, put it that way, and um, they were afraid to have an Obama bumper sticker on their car when they went to their job or their church. And mm. so to have a theater with like 2,000 people who all vote the same in red states, the energy is like unlike any rock show I've ever seen. People are just ready to scream and cheer and uh, and and hear the meanest jokes possible about fascism. And we've been joined on stage over the years by uh, everybody from Congressman Jamie Raskin to Lily Tomlin, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, has joined us on stage at some of these. A lot of great comics. The show we're doing on Saturday, October 21st, is the only date we're doing all year at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills. Um, and it's going to be Stephanie Miller, myself, uh, Hal Sparks, and the comedy duo Frangela. And we're all, it's sort of going to be a year in politics, a year in review. And um, then our panel is going to be uh, Glenn Kirshner, the MSNBC legal analyst, Rob Reiner. Uh, will be with us. He's done the show five times in the past, and he's back again, unless the strike ends, because as soon as the strike ends, he's going to shoot Spinal Tap 2. And okay. um, and then joining us will be uh, someone who I, I I asked him, and he said yes. I'm so excited about this. Ron Perlman. Uh, Hellboy himself oh, there you go. Uh, will will be the, the most fearsome guy on the strike line in L.A. will be joining us on stage. It's going to be a big party, lots of great dirty jokes, and uh, for anyone who's ready to laugh at the fascists destroying a once great democracy, you can go to sexyliberal.com. Um, I play the role of tour, uh, not sexy or liberal, but um, sexyliberal.com. <laughs> and that is Saturday, the, uh, the 21st. So that'll be a real, that's going to be a real party. Those audiences are crazy. And the Saban is a, a, a gorgeous theater. Oh, that's great. Great. Congratulations, man. We can't, I can't wait to see that. That's, that's going to awesome. be great. Uh, yeah. Thank, well, we I'll send you my reel. <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know what, <clears throat> you at you and I both have to send him the stuff that he's done for us so that he can add it to his reel. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be doing that, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> of course, <laughs> please send me the stuff, please. And that's the end of the show. No, <laughs> John, we uh, we're going to wrap up here, but we ask this question of all of our guests: um, Tell us your three favorite films, your top three, and it's going to be I, there's going to be a tie. There's always, there's, a always there's always there's always a tie. So, but but we're hoping. I mean, you could just do five and be a human. You got to make it three, really. You could, just, you, could <laughs> you know, give us five. I just my stock went down with you, didn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's actually no. Because if you if you had told me this, if you had told me three, yes, I'd come at you with five. All right. Um, Wings of Desire by Vim Vendors. Okay, would be number one. Nice. Uh, City Lights by Chaplin would be number two. Nice. The Empire Strikes Back by Irvin Kershner. There you go. Uh, it, uh, Empire Strikes Back is a fantastic movie. Fantastic. You and I should. You, I, I, I feel like you and I could nerd out on Star Trek and Star Wars films. Oh, I really can. I mean, Star Wars more, but Star Trek, I'm, I'm pretty good at. Star Wars, I could teach a college course, and I, I have a fantastic 11 year old son who actually knows more Star Wars characters than I do. But um, 1980 was just a, an amazing year for beauty, and I mean, you look at. You look at like the Empire Strikes Back and the Black Stallion and Raging Bull. Like yes, it's, it's yes. like the seventies ending and the eighties beginning in the most beautiful of ways cinematically. But and Empire Strikes Back is a masterpiece. It is. Uh, it, it is. You know, the franchise peaked forty three years ago, and I'm okay with it. It is. It's aged so well. The it themes in it are so strong, and um, I learn more about filmmaking and life and storytelling every time I watch it. It is. It's. It's one of the greatest American movies ever made. 
It does. It really is. Now, I see now. Now we not only I've always said this to our guests, we're going to have you back, but we definitely have to have you back and just and it's not, it's going to be the 624 podcast slash sci-fi because we're just going to talk about Star right. Wars and Star Trek. Well, Empire Strikes Back is in a three-way tie with The Apartment by Billy Wilder and uh, uh, <laughs> I think of everything I lost. And um, um, I don't know, All About Eve. We're co- no, Casablanca. Casablanca has got to be my top five, for God's sakes. Ooh. There you go. I, uh, Tony Dennison, I think, said Casablanca. Even, didn't he? Yeah, Casablanca, it's, Casablanca is as close to perfect as a movie gets. I mean, there's a few movies I think people should watch every 10 years. You know, I, I think yep. for like sanity in the time of war, um, I, I think Gandhi and Born on the Fourth of July, those are movies that have kept me sane during crazy times of fascism and war. But uh, just in terms, of, in, in terms of cinema, acting, screenwriting, uh, Casablanca amazes me. And if you can ever see it on a big screen, you, you, you really haven't seen it until you've watched it in theater. It's, mm. it's, I don't know why, but it's, it's so true. It's true. I love it. That's awesome. John, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. We're definitely going to have you back. And also, audience, you can you can catch John on uh, Sirius XM channel 127, right? Yes, every night. Uh, every night. And we're also a free podcast now. So it's the John Fugelsang podcast. And it's me with like all the celebrities and my opening political rants. And then our, our guests who are politicians or celebrities. We just had a, a Christoph Waltz just did our show not long ago. Oh, wow. Which was great. Nice. Um, Smokey Robinson did it this year as well. And uh, so we, we get fun people on it. That's great. No, yeah. So everybody listen in, watch. And uh, thank you so much, John. Uh, so, Mark, another great show, another great guest. Uh, our show is brought to you by The Roost and Cream Ridge Golf Course. Uh, Cream Ridge Golf Course is at in Cream Ridge, New Jersey, owns The Roost Restaurant. Great place <laughs> to go for uh, some food after uh, after hitting the, the links. Yeah, get a drink. Get a drink, watch some live entertainment Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights at The Roost and Cream Ridge, New Jersey Golf Course. Thank Guys, you so much, John. Both, I love what you both do, and it's been a pleasure to work with both of you, and I look forward to more. And um, I'll, I'll come back anytime to just talk movies as a fan because uh, it's really nice to be able to, to talk about these subjects and not be talking about Hamas and Donald Trump for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Thanks so much, John. Hey, buddy. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Peace.